You guys, I am super excited to introduce you to today's guest. And many of you probably already know her, but if not, you are in for a treat. So Amy, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Yay, thank you for having me. You're so welcome. So I was super blessed. Amy sent me her books and I have been pouring over them. I wasn't feeling very well this weekend, which is the perfect time when a homesteader is not feeling well to curl up with some tea and some really good books. And I got to go through your chicken book and I actually gleaned lots of awesome tidbits. I find usually even if we really feel like we've kind of got a handle on something, I always will learn something new. And I learned quite a bit. And one of the things that you really talked about that I haven't seen featured on, you know, in a lot of homestead discussions, maybe it's just the discussions I've been having, um, (laughs) or different things that resources is using your chickens. Using your chickens sounds kind of bad because we do love our chickens. (laughs) Let me rephrase that. (laughs) I should say is putting your chickens to use earning money for the homestead. I think a lot of us are familiar with, of course, selling your excess eggs, Mm -hmm. or even if you're doing meat chickens, butchering them and selling the meat as an option. But you really brought up and went into depth, which I loved and sat and poured over on having a breeding program and how a good breeding program and things that you can look for, one will help you get a really great breed. You, your breakdown of the different chicken breeds in the photos was really exciting and beautiful. But I loved the aspect where you talked about you can actually use chicken breeding as a way to bring in income beyond what I think a lot of us typically think of with just the meat or the food production right. side of the chicken. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that. And then I want to pick your brain a little bit further. Okay, sounds good. So chicken breeding is like the one thing that gets on my husband's nerves. (laughs) (laughs) You can waste a whole lot of money and, you know, and trying to choose your breeds and what you want. And um, I wrote this portion of my book because I basically, I didn't want people to make the same mistakes that I had made. Um, and which was spending a lot of money trying to find what you want. (laughs) So, um, breeding your chickens is definitely a really neat way to bring in an income on your homestead. Mine started with, I really wanted French black pepper marines. And so if you don't know what those are, those are like the, the dark egg laying chocolate egg chickens. And I thought I could just go out here and buy some Marians and start, you know, start breeding them and so, right? Well, no. <laughs> so, you know, you have to go through a process. You have to start by, you know, figuring out what breed you want. What is the breed standard? And knowing kind of what you're looking at. Um, my worst ever chicken story is when I went to go buy some breeding Marians. And I got home and they were all covered in lice. <laughs> I, didn't, oh. I didn't even check them before I left. They're just like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm getting all these Marians. And then as if that weren't bad enough, when they started laying their eggs, they literally looked like Orpington eggs. Like they weren't even hardly dark at all. Oh, So, yeah. So, you know, breeding to standard is really important. And generally, you're not going to find that in hatchery birds. So even some of these hatcheries that sell rare um, chicken breeds, they they just don't have the standard that a backyard chicken breeder would have. 
Um, And so that is my number one tip when you are thinking about starting to breed and wanting to sell chicks or hatching eggs or whatnot, either to your community or across the country is to really put your time and investment into finding your stock first and then building on top of that. And so generally, like I said, you're not going to find it at a hatchery. You're more likely to get into these private little bubbles in your community. And um, there are a lot of Facebook groups that you can join um, that are breed specific or breeding specific for chickens. And you can kind of find people on there that are doing this for a living or as a hobby and ask for pictures, ask for pictures of their birds, ask for pictures of the eggs. Um, Just do your research before you get started. Um, That's your biggest thing. That's going to be your biggest time consumer and and investment. Just to give you an idea, like I probably spent $300 on hatching eggs, (laughs) you know, for to get my, my Moran breeding business going. And even then you take that chance of like the eggs not hatching, which has happened to me. I spent like a hundred dollars on eggs and got gypped. None of them were fertile. Yeah. So, (laughs) so you have to be careful. So once you, you know, establish what breed you want, which like I said, can take a lot of work trying to figure out what you want and, and knowing what their standard is, then the fun part begins because then it's, you know, it's kind of your job to, protect this breed and continue on with its heritage on your property while also making an income off of, you know, your breeding your birds. And the, the biggest thing is, you know, how are you going to breed them and how are you going to market this to your community? Um, obviously you, you could have a ton of different chicken breeds, but then you would need breeding pens um, which is great if you have a lot of time to set up breeding pens and you have a large property, but a lot of the people that I know have smaller properties, so they might want to breed for different types of chickens, um, but they want to free range too, you know, so how do you do that? Um, and I have found, and that's one of the other really important things I wrote about in the book was I can actually, um, I can do two different breeds depending on what they are. So I wanted to breed Marantz and I wanted to breed Americanas, and then I wanted to breed olive acres. And coincidentally, when you breed a Moran to an Americana, you get olive acres. And so I was able to just have, you know, one quality Moran rooster with a bunch of Moran hens and a bunch of, um, you know, Americana hens. And then I could pull from, from both sides. So the Moran breeding with the Morans would produce obviously darker eggs and Morans. Um, but then when I pulled the Americana eggs, I knew that I would get, I would get absolutely get olive acres. And so there's just a lot, you can play around with their housing. Um, you can play around with your breeds and your types of eggs, or if you just want one breed, that's fine too. Um, but make sure your housing is set up so you don't have, you know, roosters hopping fences and (laughs) and you're selling chicks that are, you know, some barnyard mutt, but after your housing, you know, then you, you need to figure out how to market to your community. Uh, And generally maybe not your immediate community is going to want what you have, um, but marketing across the board and nationally. So, you know, you can ship hatching eggs, you can ship chicks, you can even ship adult birds, not it costs, you know, a substantial amount of money, but you can still do it. Um, But before you do any of that, you generally have to be NPIP certified, um, which is just a certification through the government. It's, It's fairly easy to do if you want to do that. Um, if you don't want to ship eggs, then you don't need that certification. You can just, you know, depending on your state, different state have different laws. 
um, you can go through and find locals who might want to buy your hatching eggs or who might want to buy chicks. Um, springtime is a really great time to hatch and start selling these. Uh, and I have found that on Facebook um, is a great place to market because especially in these rare breedy groups, um, people are willing to drive and actually pick up chicks. <laughs> I know that sounds weird. They're actually, they want to drive and pick up chicks um, at your, at your homestead and kind of see what you're doing. So for my Marans, you know, I, when I was really heavily into breeding chickens, um, I was selling them, you know, for five to 10 to $15 a chick which is wow. crazy, yeah. but you know, with little effort on your part, you know, you're, once you have everything established and put into place, you're basically just gathering eggs and hatching them. Um, you know, and then the, the hard part isn't the hatching, it's the networking. And then once you have that, I mean, there's always somebody looking for a breed that, that is to standard. So when I say to standard, it means, um, their confirmation is good, you know, starting with your breeding stock, um, their plumage color is good. Their feathers, you know, they have the correct markings and they look really nice. Their legs and feet are the right color. Um, their combs are the right shape. You know, different chickens have different types of combs um, and there's no deformities or anything. And their egg color is spot on what it's supposed to be. So for example, the French black copper Morans, they have different egg colors. Um, and it's like a scale from, from one to nine and nine being like, you can't ever find it. <laughs> Um, but you know, as you get darker on the scale, you can charge more for your hatching eggs and more for your, your chicks. Um, and so that's kind of what you're looking for. And, you know, to, to bring in more money on your homestead is having, you know, investing in good quality and you're definitely going to get back out of that. Because if you think, you know, if you have, let's just say you have 10 hens and you're collecting from those 10 hens every day in springtime that's a lot of eggs that you could hatch in one week and then selling all of those chicks, you know, even just $5 a chick um, or even $20 a chick. That's, that's a lot of income for you. It's a lot more income than just selling your eggs for, to eat, you know? Um, so it's, it's a really great way to set yourself up to, as my husband said, I, it kind of um, supported my habit of chicken <laughs> keeping and, and raising different breeds and just experimenting. And that's the other fun side of it is it's just a really fun experiment to look at the genetics of, of your breeding system and say, okay, well, I want my eggs to be darker. You know, if you're breeding Marantz, then maybe you'll go, you'll bring in a different rooster that comes from a, a different lineage that may, can make your eggs darker. Or if you're breeding olive acres, you know, maybe you want your eggs to look a little bit more uh, teal color than, than the dark olive color. Then you might want to just cross over your olive acre to, to another Americana again. So it's so much fun. It can be almost obsessive once you get into it. Um, to just look at the genetics that you have and really, um, crossover different breeds and, and crossover different lineages to get what you want because we all want that really colorful egg basket too. Um, yeah. So you can do that by, you know, breeding and crossbreeding and, and doing different things with your, with your breeding stock. And it's, so it's just fun and it's a great income on your homestead if you can perfect your system. I love that. So I have a couple of questions first going back to 
Um, so it's kind of basically when you're saying standard, which reminds me, so I have, I have not done any chicken breeding like Amy has. I mean, I've hatched out eggs before with my hens and, and had that, but not, not for really getting into the breeding, like you're saying, or selling it. So with the Morans that you first got and their eggs weren't that dark color, I'm assuming because they had perhaps been crossed somewhere in their lineage with they weren't purebred. I'm thinking when you're saying standard, like it's really more right. purebred to get those pure genetics. Yeah, that- I mean, it could be that. The other thing is when you're breeding, you, you want to selectively pull the best from your flock. So, um, you know, you might actually, let's say, you know, let's just use Miranda are a really great um, example because a lot of people want, want to own them or, or breed them. Um, you could have a fluke. You know, you could have a hen that you've hatched that you've had you know, this lineage going for three, four, five years, and then out pops this hen and she has this really light colored egg that it, it, sometimes it just happens. Okay. Um, so at that point, you're going to, if you can catch her laying, then you're going to mark her and you'll, you'll call her and call doesn't necessarily mean kill. It means just get rid of her from your flock. You could sell her. doesn't mean she's a bad hen. It just means she doesn't fit into your genetics. So in other words, you don't want to breed birds that are flawed. Um, because then that lighter colored egg in your breeding system can continue to make all of your eggs lighter, you know, going throughout the lineage. So typically like the, the chickens that I got were hatchery birds and hatcheries are so busy that they generally don't pull the best of the best. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, they just pull all of the eggs and then you kind of have this, you're not bettering the breed. In other words, you're just continuing to breed them over and over again, no matter what their egg color is. Okay. And so eventually that, that gets into bad quality color, um, either with the egg or even with the chickens as well. I mean, there are chickens that'll come out flawed. Um, you know, if it's a black bird, it might have some white feathers and instead of just, you know, selling them or, or getting rid of them, they just continue to breed them. And then it continues to make your birds not, not according to the standard that they should be. Okay, got it. And then you were mentioning that if you wanted to deepen that color and or like you were saying, because I've had olive acres before and you wanted to get more teal out of them, then you were either going to cross them back with a bird with a blue to bring that in. But with the Moran, you mentioned getting a different rooster for dark eggs. So is it, I know it's the genetics, but when you're trying to go, you know, when you're breeding and you're trying to breed to something specific like that deepening an egg color is it usually where you will go to a different rooster or is it the hen or is it a combination like if you're looking to to change that to a degree what's your best bet it could be either really so if you want to get really snobby about it (laughs) there are actually people i'm not this person like i wish i could be but i'm not there are people who like have studied the genetics, like they went to college and veterinary school and they know, they know genetics inside and out. And so they'll actually, you know, write down the genetics of their chicken and all this. I don't have the mind capacity for that, but kudos to them. Um, The reality is that when you start changing, you know, you don't want to change out your whole chicken flock. Um, in order to try and get something of better color. So I always start with the rooster. Okay. Um, if I, cause that's just, it's just one rooster, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so I always start with him, but you're kind of playing a slippery slope there too, because he's a rooster. So you really don't know what he's going to produce. Um, if you, if you don't know what hens he came from, 
Um, so a lot of times I will try to mark my eggs. Um, you'll, you'll try to replenish your rooster from within your own lineage because what happens is if you do bring an outside rooster in or even outside hens in, it breaks that genetic. Um, so even if the rooster is from a darker egg laying flock, it could actually come in and the genetics could just mess up and, and it could do nothing or it could even make your eggs lighter. It just depends on what genetic makeup they are. Um, so it's always best to kind of replenish your flock from your flock. Okay. Um, so you're going to, you know, that looks for me, that looks like pulling my darkest of darkest eggs and only hatch. And that might only look like five, you know, um, hatching those five eggs and then putting a, a leg band on them. That way I know, you know, specifically, oh, I hatched them and this is why I hatched them. And, um, and then pulling a new rooster and even new hens, um, from, from that batch and then rotating out my old ones or the ones that I don't find are satisfactory to okay. our breeding program. Um, because in that way, you're not, you're not breaking that genetic makeup. You see what I mean? Like, yeah, it's almost like a break and then you're adding in this new lineage. So the genetics have to figure it out before they really start break, you know, giving you good quality color. Um, so it's always best to replenish your stock from your stock, but you know, the, the bad part about that is that it could take years. Um, you know, you could have to breed multiple times, uh, multiple different generations to get what you want. But on the flip side, that's also the fun part of it too. Um, because after a few years of putting all that hard work into it, you really have something that, that you strive to, to create. I love that. So what I'm taking away is you want to start with as close to what you're after as possible when you're buying your breeding stock, and then yep. you can refine it throughout the generations. And I have to ask this because I, I really don't know with the chickens, we've done cattle a ton. Do you worry about inbreeding by pulling from your same lineage? Is, is that a risk at some point or does it not really matter so much with birds? So that's a really great question. So with birds, it's so much more complicated because, you know, if you think of flocks in the wild, they just keep breeding, you know, they don't care, you know, what, whether it's a brother or sister or whatever. Um, but you do want to try to control that if you can, if, if your breeding stock is getting bigger um, and you want to get more out of it, then uh, Harvey Ussery actually wrote a great book. Um, I think it's called the small scale poultry flock. Um, and he, I, Harvey's actually here in Virginia and I visited his farm a few years ago. And he has a great breeding system um, where he basically splits his barn into three different sections. Um, I think it's like he calls it the green section, red section, and blue section. And he has a rooster and hens in each section, and they can't get to each other. So he, he utilizes um, electric poultry netting so they can still free range, but they're not, you know, one group isn't able to get to the other group. Um, and then what he does is he has breeding seasons. So he leg bands everybody. If it's the red group, they have a red leg band, etc. Um, and when it's not breeding season, he, he just throws them all together and they're, they range together. But when it is breeding season, he separates them into the three flocks. And obviously you would need to wait at least a month before you start pulling eggs. Um, because it can take 28 days for the new rooster that's in with that flock to actually have taken effect on his breeding. Okay. Um, so after you've waited a month, um, then I would give him a couple weeks after that month. And then you could start pulling eggs from each group. Now, each year, 
stay with me here because it's, <laughs> it's really it, it kind of like sitting here talking to you. It's more of a visual thing. Um, and you can look it up online and I encourage people to, to just visually see it. So each year he rotates um, the hens into a different group. So, uh-huh. or he'll rotate the rooster, whichever one is easier for you. So let's just get, let's just say the rooster. So the rooster from the red group gets switched to the blue group. Let's just say that. And the rooster from the blue group gets switched to the green group. Um, so the roosters are always rotating while the hens and their offspring are staying in a different group. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, so you're getting a wider range of genetics with very little inbreeding. Um, and then by the time that third rooster gets back to his original pen, um, you know, it, that's, that's three breeding seasons. And so by that time, you're already rotating out your, your hens. Um, so the offspring that's in there from him three years ago is so far apart from his genetics that it, it's not going to make a difference. Okay. That's good to know. Cause I know with our cattle, like we were, we pray and it's a little bit easier, obviously with cattle <laughs> than it is with right. chickens. I have to say just the nature of it, but we, you know, pay really close attention to, you know, which bull with which heifer or then cow, et cetera, came from mm-hmm. um, so that we can track that. So I was, I was curious on the, on the chicken parts because I don't actually keep a rooster. I just do all of my laying hens. And then I have a friend that does have a rooster when I decide one of my hens is going broody and I need to hatch out, you know, whatever. I, I just get fertilized eggs from her locally. Mm-hmm. Like you said, having that local person is really great. Um, and so I haven't actually dealt with the rooster in my flock personally. So I was very curious about that. And then coming back to, especially kind of the, the monetary side, so obviously you've got a couple options. You can sell the fertilized eggs and ship those and then people hatch them out themselves. You mm-hmm. can sell the chicks, just hatched babies, and then an older bird as well. But kind of walk me through the... I guess kind of the pros and cons of each method and, and approximate. And I realize it definitely depends on the more rare the breed or right. the better your stock, et cetera, is going to allow you to charge more, I'm assuming per egg and then per chicken. But is there like a minimum amount? Like usually you send out at least a dozen fertile eggs and kind of the different price points and, and pros and cons of each of those options for people that are kind of trying to decide like, oh, this is something I probably want to do. And they're kind of weighing the different ways to go yeah, about it for sure so it also depends on your region and location too um so what i see i'm in like central northern virginia so i'm far enough in the country to not have to deal with traffic <laughs> but i'm close enough to the city to where our prices are still higher um so you'll really need to kind of look at your region and see what compare what people are, are charging here and then of course if you're doing more nationally it doesn't really matter um, so you can, starting with hatching eggs, um, you can sell, you know, as little as six eggs, or you can sell as many, you know, really as many as you want up to 24 to 48 eggs. Of course, it's more expensive to ship at that point. Uh, and shipping is really, really important too, because as you can imagine, shipping eggs can be a little bit risky. Yeah. Um, so you'll need to really do your research at the post office on how much it's going to cost you. To, to package and ship those eggs. And generally people are, are willing to pay for that. Um, so don't, don't worry about that too much. Make sure you're definitely getting your money out of it. Um, but generally people will buy a dozen 
And what I would like to do, uh, what I did when I was shipping them was add in a few extra just in case um, a, an egg or two breaks on the way there. Cause it's inevitable, you know, it, it could definitely happen. Um, so generally people that would ship a dozen eggs would actually ship 14 eggs. Um, that way people get two extra eggs in case there's a break in one or two of the eggs. Um, and generally for Moran eggs or for any good quality stock, you're probably going to start the lowest I've seen is starting at $50 a dozen. Um, that doesn't include shipping. Um, and it can go up to $200 a dozen, um, depending on the breed and the quality of your stock. Um, the sweet spot for me um, that I have found over the years of doing Marians is generally between 75 and 125 to ship um, a dozen Moran eggs. Uh, that again, that doesn't include the shipping. Um, okay. Shipping is around like 15 to $25 extra on top of that. Um, so that kind of look in that range. And then depending on your quality, take that into consideration before you put a price on that. Um, I don't like shipping eggs, which is why I don't do it anymore. Um, it used to be years ago where you could ship eggs and the person would be happy, even if every single one of them were cracked, as long as you made it good, you know, as long as you sent them another dozen eggs to make good for it. Um, now it is extremely competitive and it's extremely harsh. Um, there are groups and, and it's a good thing. I mean, there are groups like bad egg groups um, on Facebook where people will just call you out, even if there are like two broken eggs in, in their shipment um, and just plaster you across the internet. And it used to not be like that. You know, it used to be, um, between the buyer and the seller and the seller made good when they needed to. And now, you know, it's the nature of the beast with social media. Um, it, it's just, it's a really harsh market. So take that in cons into consideration before shipping eggs. Um, what I really enjoy doing is selling chicks and selling adult birds. Um, so chicks are easy to sell. You know, people love to sell, to buy chicks anyhow, because hatching eggs can really be hit or miss. Um, if the person doesn't know what they're doing, no offense to anyone, and they try to hatch, you know, eggs that they just paid $150 for, and they don't hatch based on them not knowing what they were doing, that still falls on you, the seller. Um, so I really enjoy selling chicks and, and mailing chicks. Just, again, make sure you do your research on that. Um, generally, I don't take less than $5 a chick. Um, and I have gone up to $15 a chick, depending on the quality and the breed. So I know that's a really wide range, um, but you don't want to undersell yourself either. You know, um, you've put a lot of time and effort into breeding these birds. And so you want to get, you know, get back out of that. It's not something people can go from the hatchery and buy at all. You have something unique that you've worked on. And so people should generally know that they're going to pay more for that. Um, as far as adult birds, I'm getting $25 to $75 a bird, again, depending on what they are and what their quality is. But generally, it's on the lower end. It's between $25 and $35 because the birds that I would be getting rid of aren't birds that I would keep in my lineage. You know what I mean? So you're, you're generally going to sell stock that isn't top bar stock, but still really good. Again, really a lot better than those hatchery birds. So even um, even some of my good quality hatchery birds, I'm selling them for $25 per hen. 
Um, again, that's my region. So I can do that. Um, I have a friend that lives in Mississippi and she, she could not do that. Like it, it, people would think she was crazy, you know, <laughs> like she lost her mind. Um, but I can consistently sell hens around here for $25 each, um, which hens don't eat a ton, especially if you're free ranging. So you are making good money on them. If you, you know, basically what people do is, is they keep their hens that they've hatched and see what quality they have. And then they, they call or get rid of um, the hens that don't meet their standard. Uh, and so generally those are the hens you're going to see people selling. Um, they're still great quality. They're just not, you know, maybe not as bright colored as they could be, or, you know, the egg quality might not be as good as they, they particularly wanted for their breeding stock. Gotcha. Um, so there's, you know, there's a wide variety, but generally that's where you're going to start. Okay. And, you know, food production wise, when you're culling them, it's just fine. If it's someone who's just wanting eggs, it's just not particularly for breeding. So right. that's a, that can be a great way to go. And then I do have, I'm assuming, cause I've ordered birds in from different hatcheries before that you have a minimum when you're shipping the live baby birds, that there's a minimum so that they can try to help keep each other warm. Cause that's pretty much the downfall I've realized with shipping. Um, and usually they overnight them and, and try to do it really fast. And there's that short window mm -hmm. of from when the, the chick has just hatched because they can go so many days from hatching without eating or drinking or so many hours. Um, but right. so do you, do you do that as well? You have a specific minimum on the live chicks? Yeah, you would, you would need to have a specific minimum. So you would need to take into consideration. Generally you would want to hatch your chicks so that they are hatching out over a weekend so that you can ship first thing on Monday morning. Um, that way the chicks can get there on Tuesday or at the latest on Wednesday. Uh, and then there are obviously you can buy the same um, little gel packs and stuff that hatcheries purchase to put in the box with the chicks. Um, you would also need to take into consideration the season. So a lot of people don't like a lot of home breeders don't ship chicks until it's springtime and warm enough outside to, to make sure they get there in a timely ma manner and stay warm. Um, but generally your minimum, even on warm weather is six chicks. Um, so, and depending on the state, you might have different laws for different states, but you don't typically want to go any less than six. Um, in fact, it's recommended to do no less than 12 as well. But I've, a lot of people are able to get away with six chicks, even these big hatcheries do, um, and, and they do just fine. So just, that's why a lot of people have breeding seasons for their chickens, um, because you don't want to be shipping chicks in the middle of January. And they either get stuck at a post office in the middle of a snowstorm or, you know, and they don't get to the person in time or just the weather in general is super cold for them. Gotcha. So when you are, and I love having the seasons because that kind of takes the pressure off of you for fulfilling all the orders and doing all mm -hmm. the, the extra work that comes with having customers and doing the breeding program. But when you're gathering your eggs that you're going to be using to hatch out to, you know, to sell fertilized or for your, your own hatching purposes, the chicken, obviously, usually depending on the breed and everything, averagely an egg a day. So when that egg is coming from a fertilized chicken and you're gathering it and not washing it, et cetera, how many days do you have? Is there a time period there that's ideal? And then it starts right to break down and you've kind of lost that window of it actually developing into a chick? 
Yeah, generally, I've found that seven days is your window of opportunity there. I mean, I find that fertility starts to decrease after a week, which is good news for people that only have maybe four birds that want to hatch a lot of eggs at one time um, and are only getting a few eggs a day, which I was in the beginning um, and want to do one big hatch at all at one time. Um, so I would make sure that you're, you're not keeping your eggs any longer than seven days before you put them in the incubator. And while you're waiting to hatch those eggs, make sure you store them with the pointed side down or laying flat, like on the counter, like they naturally would lay. Um, that way the air sac stays intact and in the proper spot. Okay. Good tip there. And I'm assuming when you're doing a large breeding program or breeding wise that you're not having the hen hatch out the babies because one, you don't want to put her through that and then taking these chicks away right away. Um, But two, you have a little bit more control on being able to do larger batches, especially in season when using an incubator versus just letting the hen do it herself. So do you have any kind of some quick tips or info on when you are selecting out your incubator and kind of your hatchery supplies? Sure. I really love the Brincy incubators. Um, We have used them for years. We've used different ones from them um, and tested them out for them even um, just to see what kind of works on our homestead. They make, you know, as small as a six egg incubator to as big as a cabinet incubator. And all of them in our experience have worked really well for us. Um, The nice thing is, is that you do have control over the humidity and the timing, and you can kind of control when they're going to hatch. Um, so, so especially if you want them to hatch on a weekend uh, or a Monday, my experience with broodies is they kind of just come when they want to come, <laughs> depending on the weather um, and you know how hot it is or how cold it is. Um, and then the other thing is you can, if you need to band the chick's leg to keep track of what it is. Um, so a lot of people will have two different breedings going at one time. And so they'll hatch two different types of eggs at one time. So um, for this reason, you have that control where you can band their legs. So you know, you know, what type of bird it is, what type of chick it is. Um, And my, my experience is finding a good solid incubator that does a lot of the work for you. So whether that's the Brinsey incubator or, um, you know, another brand, as long as it is keeping track of your humidity Um, and how many days you're at and what the temperature is, that takes a lot of stress off of you. I would say that I would buy um, an additional little, you can buy these little reptile thermometers to put into the incubator um, to to figure out what the humidity is. So I would invest in one of those for every incubator that you have, because sometimes the incubator humidity um, level that it's telling you could be a little bit off. And humidity is really, really important. Um, and hatching chicks. So just make sure you get an extra one of those to put in each incubator. Uh, That way you can make sure throughout the entire hatch that the humidity is good and where it's supposed to be. Okay. So I have two questions real quick. And guys, I know as you're listening, you're like, what was that again? So no worries. We will have in the blog post that accompanies this episode, different links and resources for you. So if you're like, what was that name or where do I find this? All of that stuff will be in the blog post. So you can make sure that you go there and grab that. Um, But a couple of questions I had is one, why is the humidity so important? And two, do any of these talking about doing the work for you, 
Do any of these actually turn the eggs or are you always turning the eggs manually yourself? Well, so a lot of incubators nowadays do turn the eggs. Um, and that's one of the amazing automatic things that they do. It used to be, you know, when I started hatching eggs years ago, where you got one of those big styrofoam incubators and trust me, they do work. Um, they just have a lot of, of issues um, still. Um, but you used to have to get one of those big styrofoam incubators where you had to turn them manually and, and like, that's really hard if you're working away yeah. from home during the day. Um, so uh, most new incubators come with automatic turners. So uh, they kind of turn them every few hours side to side. Uh, if you, you can still opt to manually turn and some people do, they think they have a better hatchery. I haven't seen any difference in my hatches. Um, I, in fact, I would probably say I see an, a better increase in hatch rate when I use the turner because it's less me touching the egg physically every day, um, mm -hmm. which allows bacteria and stuff to get into the egg. Um, but if you're going to turn manually, then you would, you would at least want to turn once in the morning and once in the evening, but ideally three times a day. So once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once in the evening. Okay. Um, now, humidity is extremely important, maybe even more so than keeping your temperature. And that's the thing about incubators. Your temperature is going to fluctuate, and that's okay. As long as it's not going, you know, three degrees either way, uh, you're good. You're fine. I think of a broody hen. I mean, she's up and moving around all the time and those eggs are just fine. Um, but humidity is something that we have to replicate in a hatching environment because when a broody hen hatches, she's automatically got that humidity up underneath of her feathers. So her skin is touching those eggs while she's hatching them, which creates a natural humidity and, and moisture in those eggs. Um, it keeps the chick floating. Uh, it keeps, um, the chick moving throughout the egg. Uh, it, it helps the air move throughout the egg as it needs to. But then if you have too high of humidity, which a lot of people end up having when their eggs start hatching, then it can cause the yolk not to completely absorb into the chick, um, which is a whole nother issue. It can cause bacteria in the egg, um, and can cause a low hatch rate. And it can also, a lot of people will have eggs hatch especially closer to the end of a hatch. They'll have eggs hatch where um, there will be this little uh, attachment on the chicken's belly, looks like a belly button, um, and not all of the yolk has been absorbed. And so a lot of times that means the humidity was too high, um, maybe not throughout your entire hatch, but maybe the day of the hatch um, with all of the chicks hatching and the humidity going up naturally. Um, on the other hand, if your humidity is too low, then your chicks might do fine growing, but come hatch day, they're not going to be able to hatch themselves. Um, there's a membrane. I actually did a video on this recently. There's a membrane inside of the egg. And if that membrane doesn't stay moist enough, um, it almost becomes like leather and shrink wraps the chick inside. Um, mm. So it could be a perfectly healthy chick, but without the proper humidity, um, it can't hatch on its own. So that's where a lot of times you see people having to help eggs hatch, which they don't generally recommend, but I'm going to tell you, I always help my eggs hatch <laughs> if, if they're having issues. I just feel like everybody needs a fighting chance. So I do help eggs hatch if it's been, you know, more than 48 hours and they're not coming out. Um, but if, if the humidity is too low, they get shrink wrapped and they can't hatch. If the humidity is too high, um, then it, there could be, uh, you know, bacteria or their egg yolk won't absorb enough, which can both situations can cause the chick to die 
whether it's in the egg or once they hatch. Okay. So humidity is really important. I didn't realize it played all of those different roles, actually. So thank you for breaking that down, which your love, obviously, for homegrown food and for homesteading definitely comes across both in the book and just getting to visit with you here, which naturally leads me to ask you, for those of you who haven't met Amy before or haven't heard of Homesteaders of America, and specifically the big conference that's really taking off and growing. Um, can you share a little bit about kind of your journey, how you started it and what people need to know? Sure. Yeah. This is like my favorite topic ever to talk about. <laughs> um, so I have like no elaborate story of how it started. I always laugh when people ask me, Oh, what was your dream? And honestly, I'm like, well, I just, thought I might try it. <laughs> um, years ago, a few years back, uh, a friend of mine, well, I had started homesteading and like most homesteaders, I was the one doing it. And my husband wasn't really necessarily on board. Like he was okay if I did it, but he didn't necessarily want to be part of it, you know? And so I didn't really have um, a lot of community locally and I didn't really have my husband that I could bounce ideas off of. I mean, he just kind of looked at me like I had an octopus on my face. And, <laughs> and so I had to go into the online community, which when I started was just starting to grow. Um, and so when I go on now, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm so overwhelmed. There's so many people, which is amazing, you know, um, but it's not nothing like what it used to be. And so a friend of mine, you know, I would see different um conferences popping up and I'm like, you know what? I'm never going to be able to travel to any of these. I'm just, I'm not really a travel type person unless it's for work. Um, and there's no way in heck I'm going to get my husband on board. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I don't want to go by myself. So, you know how I really want to go to one. And so a friend of mine said, why don't you just start one? And I'm like, well, wow, that was totally other end of the spectrum. I said, I have no experience doing this. She's like, Oh, you could totally do it. She's like, just, just do it. And I said, you know what? I will do it, but it's got to all fall into place. Like if it's not something that will completely and totally fall into place in every aspect, then I'm not going to do it. And lo and behold, if it did not fall into place, every single detail, um, that first year, which was in 2017 was the first year that we had the first conference. And, um, all the speakers fell into place. I, I remember I actually reached out to Joel Salatin first and I said, listen, I have no money. <laughs> you know, I, I, have nothing. <laughs> I love the lead like, in. <laughs> like, I, I was honest with him. I said, I have no money to offer you. I cannot give you a deposit. I'm going off a wing and a prayer. This is, you know, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm trying to build a community of people um, like me who may not have other people, you know, and I want you to be my speaker. I want you to be my main keynote speaker. And Joel emailed me back and he said, I love your drive. He's like, I love your gumption. He's like, I don't need to sign a contract. I don't need a deposit. He's like, I will be there if you tell me to be there and I will trust that I will get paid eventually. <laughs> you know, and that's just, that's just Joel for you. But so we were expecting like maybe 300 people to show up the first year and we had over 1200 people show up. Wow. Um, which was um, just incredible. It blew me absolutely away. And I can remember my husband staying there just like with his mouth open. He's like, Oh wow. He's like, you really, you know, it really, people wanted to come, you know, he, he was just shocked. He couldn't believe it. 
And um, it was like a big family reunion. The people that you connect with online, the YouTubers that you follow, the people that you listen to podcasts on, you actually got to come together, you know, once a year to, to learn with them and grow with them. And it's continued in that trend. Um, of course, we have more and more people now. We had over 3,000 people come last year. Uh, and that was our third year doing it. And um, it was just, it still had that feeling. You know, my concern has always been when it gets so big, is it still going to have that home feeling? Is it still going to feel like home? And it did. And and people still walked away saying, oh my gosh, it still felt like we were just having a big family reunion. Um, you know, we met so many people that we'd never even heard of. And we learned so many things that we didn't even know about. And um, it, it's just, it's such a fun community event. And so, of course, we've grown. Uh, we've grown online as well. We have an online membership. So my one of the things that a lot of people were saying is that they couldn't come to the conference, kind of like my situation in the beginning. I couldn't go to all of these places. Um, and so what I took that into consideration, and we decided to start filming every lecture uh, last year and putting those lectures online as part of our organization and online membership. So that if people can't come to the conference, they can actually still view the lectures online with their membership. Um, so you don't have to travel if you can't, or if you have to miss one year and you're used to coming every year, then you can get an online membership and watch the videos and the lectures that you missed. Um, so we're just kind of growing in so many different ways. And, and this year will probably be our biggest year yet. Um, you know, weather, weather permitting, of course, it's all dependent on the weather. Um, but this year, we, of course, we have Joel. Uh, we have Eustace Conway from Mountain Men coming back. Um, and we have um, country music artist Rory Feet coming, which is pretty exciting. Um, and he's going to close out the weekend for us with some music and then just some stories of, of his life. Um, for those who don't know that he was the part of the duo, uh, Joey and Rory. Um, and so it's just going to be a really fun time, uh, kind of building on that community of just coming together once a year, during, during and after, you know, depending on the region, harvest season, and just enjoying fellowship with so many of the other homesteaders that, that literally come from all over the country just, just to be together and learn together and grow together. It's, it's really, really neat. Oh, I'm, it's so exciting to see. That's really a short time for it to have grown that much, honestly, oh, yeah. you know, for yeah. a live event. And I, I think I get so excited to hear that because I see the homesteading movement, and I'm sure you're seeing it too, and what you just shared is it's growing. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's more and more of us who are longing for this way of life. So there's more people coming in and now in this, you know, modern age, which does have some very wonderful things about it. I know oftentimes a lot of people like to gripe about some of the things that happen with social media and modern stuff, and there's yeah. pros and cons. There's a, there's a flip to every, every side, right. but I think it's amazing that we are getting to connect digitally and in ways and impacting people and helping them, you know, down this path, no matter where they're at, or like you shared how much, you know, land you have or how little you have, et cetera, that there's a way to do this, but to see it forming an actual community, I right. think is pretty, pretty amazing. And so I'm, I'm super excited. I hope it's okay to let the cat out of the bag that I'm going to be at Homesteaders of America conference yeah. this year. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, and we're excited to have you. I think it's pretty because you've actually emailed me for a few years now. 
And I've just been so, over, as you can imagine, overwhelmed with people wanting to speak and trying to give everyone an equal chance while, while still having my, my keynotes, you know, my main people that I want every year. And so I was excited when you reached out about doing the podcast. And, and then when you sent me your book, I was like, oh my goodness, I have to have her here. You know, it's just, it's so amazing. And just growing knowledge and community together. I, it's, it's funny because H, we call it HOA. And everybody makes fun of, of it being called HOA because so many HOAs and communities don't let you have chickens and farm animals and stuff. And we didn't do that intentionally. Um, but it's just so fitting that we are, we're, we're going against that, <laughs> that rule in so many places with Homesters of America. And, but people are finding, you know, it's growing, I think, because people are finding that you don't have to be a farmer to do all this stuff. You know, I mean, I, I grew up around farming. My grandfather was a farmer. And, um, you know, growing up, I was like, yeah, I'm never going to do this. This isn't, no, 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 no. And when we first got chickens, my, which was my husband's idea, by the way, you know, <laughs> um, when we first got chickens, I told my husband, I was like, we can't get chickens. We're not farmers. And he's like, well, why not? You know? And so I was terrified when I first <laughs> got chickens because I knew nothing about them. I thought for sure I was going to kill them. And when I realized how easy it was to raise chickens, well, then it was just a drop in the hat to get, you know, ducks and goats and rabbits and quail and, you know, and chickens truly are the gateway animal, um, you know, and then to grow a big garden. And it's just, when you meet your tribe, you know, of people that yeah. get it, you know, that can encourage you to do it, that, that can really be there for you and encourage you and just like revitalize your spirit once a year. It's incredible. And the one story I always like to tell that will always stick with me, even if, even if Homesteaders of America goes away one day, um, was the first year there was, you know, we were doing lectures, we were in between lectures and I was coming off the stage after telling people, you know, it was lunch break and all that. And there was this man sitting in the front row and he was, he was holding his, his young child and she was asleep. And I was just standing there, you know, really, you know, half aware of him being there. And he looks at me and he goes, thank you. And I said, thank you for what? And he goes, thank you for doing this. He said, my wife and I, you know, they lived in a totally different state. He said, my wife and I have been living this lifestyle for at least 12 years. And, you know, we have children and we've adopted children and we live mostly off grid. We, we grow all of our own food. He said, you don't know how many friends we've lost and how many family members think we're crazy for the amount of kids that we have and the, and just striving to grow our own food. He said, we don't have anybody. And he said, when we got here today, the first hour into the first lecture, my wife looked at me and said, we finally belong somewhere. This, this oh. is where we belong. He said for the first time, and he just broke down crying. He said, for the first time in 12 years, we feel like we actually belong somewhere. And ever since then, that has been my mission with, with Homesters of America is to, to make everybody feel like, you know, who's living this lifestyle, that they belong somewhere, that we're all in this together, that it's normal to do this thing. It, it was actually more normal than modern life is now. And so it was just really encouraging and inspiring to hear him say that. I love that. You know, even myself being a fifth generation homesteader, I get asked this quite often and, and I do live pretty rurally and a lot of people around me do grow a vegetable garden and, and there's a, a decent amount of people who actually even still can and preserve and, and that type of thing where I live. But honestly, I only know one other person in, I hate to use the term real life, but who is close to me, like 
um, mileage wise, (laughs) um, that really does the everything on the level that we do, like, you know, does, does all, all the things that encompass homesteading. Most other people I know will do a small part, but when I really start talking about, you know, all these different things, even, even my parents, um, like my mom doesn't do sourdough. She doesn't do kombucha. She doesn't do fermenting. She does some canning. Um, you know, and when I start talking about all this stuff, she is my mom. So of course she's going to listen, but you can tell it's not, it's not that same it's not that same level. Like people will be polite, be like, oh, that's cool. But they don't have that passion. And when you meet other people who are at the, and they don't even have to be at the same level as doing it all, but they want to, and they understand why we do all of this work to do what we do. It's so revitalizing. So I, I love hearing that. So this year, um, Homesteaders of America will be in October and Mm -hmm. 9th and 10th, correct? Right. 2020. Okay. And it's in Virginia. Um, and guys, we will have in the, the show notes, but if people are wanting to look at tickets, um, it sounds like you're growing so much. Is it going to, are you going to have a number that it's capped at just as far as, is having room yeah. for everybody? And um, we are concerned oh. this year that we might have to cap it off. So we are encouraged, you know, we've never, we haven't had to do that in the last two years since we moved to a bigger facility. But um, we are concerned this year that we, that we might have to do that. So we are encouraging people to get their tickets online in advance. And the tickets online in advance are cheaper anyhow um, okay. than at the gate. So um, just, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. And, of course, we'll know more as we get closer to conference. Um, but we just we really encourage people to get them online, you know, ahead of time rather than waiting. Okay, perfect. And... Now, normally, this is the part of the show I do. So all of my my longtime listeners, I'm really excited because I don't actually have this opportunity very often to ask one of my guests, but I know that Amy is a fellow uh, Christian and a believer. So Amy's actually going to take over the verse of the week spot that ends the show. So Amy, I am super excited to hear about the verse and however that verse is laying on your heart and to share that with us. I'm excited too, because this is a verse. It might actually be two verses. Um, That's fine. <laughs> that I, I saw this verse years ago and it's, it just resonated with me so much, especially when it comes to homesteading and just life in general. And it is first Thessalonians four. And it starts with verse 11 and it says to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And that verse just resonates so much with my life because I come from a, a, a career background in media. And as you can imagine, media is just crazy nowadays. And there's so much noise. And, you know, when we, when I decided to, to work at home and be at home with my children, um, one of those things was to get away from the noise and then naturally homesteading kind of sat in with that. And so to just live a quiet life, to, to hear that in the Bible, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, there's so much, there's so much peace and understanding and and mission, you know, finding your mission when you're working with your hands and just living your daily life. And I especially love the last part where it says so that you will not be dependent on anybody. 
And for so many of us homesteaders, that is that is what we want. We don't want to have to be dependent on any food system or government system or anything like that. Uh, and, it, and it says it right here in the Bible. So um, more so than anything, though, is to choose simple. That That is one of the things that I have been um, basing this verse with my life and just choosing simple every day, saying, saying yes to the things that I should be saying yes to and no to the things that don't really make a difference. Um, whether it's, you know, waking up early to get more done or choosing to live intently with, you know, my children and or working in the garden or whatever it may be. But that verse, I just love it. And, and just to remind us to, to live a simple, quiet life so that it will be a testimony to so many other people and to work with our, our hands um, and, and to owe no man anything. So to be dependent on no one, it's just, I love that verse. And I'm so happy that you let me share it with you. Oh, I love that too. That was, it's almost like the anthem Right. Right. Yeah. Like when as you were sharing it, I'm like, oh my goodness. I hadn't, um, you know, I've heard the verse before, but when you shared it just there, like it really stood out and I'm like, yes, yes. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you shared that and your heart and that you followed what I believe was a seed that the Lord planted and that you followed the, the planting and the caretaking of that and have done the homesteaders of America um, and created created the, a gathering place for people. So I'm, I'm so excited to get to be a part of it this year. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing about the chicken breeding. And we'll have links to Amy's book, you guys, so you can go and check it out because we really just... We really just pulled out a small section from your book. We were focusing on breeding, but there's so much more incorporated into the book. So if you're looking at getting chickens or breeding chickens, keeping chickens, or if you even have chickens, um, I think it was some of the most in-depth on natural chicken keeping, which is what I'm after, especially for dealing with things uh, naturally and with herbs like, you know, parasites and different things like that. You mentioned even you got a flock that had lice and you didn't realize it in different natural ways to treat that. Because a lot of times when we go to the feed stores or even online resources for things with your chickens, um, the recommendation is to use like delousing powder that has you know, different synthetic chemicals and different things like that. And so I really loved that you gave some amazing natural options and just a ton of different stuffs in there. So the link will be in today's blog post and show notes. And you could definitely check that book out from Amy. So Amy, thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun.